Hi, this is J.P. Bristow, host of the Russian Empire History Podcast, a podcast about the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. What do you think about when you think of Russians? Do you think of Muslims or Buddhists? Did you know that over 140 languages have some kind of official status in the Russian Federation today? Do you think that all Russians are white? The Russian Empire was born where the Slavs from the northern forests met the peoples of the steppe. Less than half the population of the empire was ethnically Russian. And even in the Russian Federation today, ethnic Russians are only slightly over 70%. The history of the Russian Empire is the history of Tatars, Jews, Bashkirs, Turkmen, Armenians, Greeks and Kazakhs, as well as Russians, and reflects its position between Europe and Asia, and a heritage that draws on many sources, as well as its history of colonialism. The histories of these people are intertwined, and none of them can be fully told without each other. The Russian Empire History Podcast looks at the history of all these people, tracing the origins and traditions that have contributed to their modern identities. If you'd like to see the bigger picture of the biggest country on earth, join me at the Russian Empire History Podcast.com and on all good podcast platforms. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa Podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we concluded on the greatest triumph of Osebonso, his defeat of numerous rebellions in the Ashanti southern region, and his monumental conquest of the Jiaman kingdom to their north. And yes, that's Giaman, not Giaman, like I kept saying last time. Thank you to the listener who helped me out there. Pronunciation is still, and will forever be, my greatest weakness. However, rather than continuing our story immediately where we left off, I want to slow down a little this episode, and depart a little bit from our discussion of historical kings, queens, wars, politics, and macroeconomics. This episode, we'll take a general survey and get to know a little better the people and landscape of the Ashanti Empire. I choose to do this now because, from the hindsight of historians, the closing months of 1820 were a very important time for the Ashanti. In a significance that only hindsight can provide, these last months of the 125th year since the foundation of the Ashanti Empire represent the all-time peak of Ashanti power. To spoil history a little bit, things don't necessarily go well for the Ashanti Empire from here on out. Don't get me wrong, it's not all doom and gloom. We'll see our fair share of triumphs and innovations and successes, but this moment in late 1820, with Osebonso having dipped his sword in the ocean, the Fanti elites and European merchants pledging their subservience to the Ashantihane for a second time, and their Jaman rivals forced into subjugation, this is the peak. For the Ashanti Empire, this is the best it will ever be. But, I mean, what do we actually know about the Ashanti Empire anyways? Like, we've been talking about the Ashanti for like 14 episodes now. We know about their origins, migrating from Wagadu and the existence of the Bono State, their subservience to the Danchira, unification under Ose Tutu and expansion under Opokoware. We know about the reforms of Ose Kwajo, the wars and the many, many succession disputes. But what even is the Ashanti Empire? What does that look like, smell like, and, well, even taste like? What do its people even do besides fight over succession and reform governments? We've seen bits and pieces here and there, but I think it's high time that we dedicate an episode not to the Ashantahanes of the Empire, but to the average working class Ashanti subject. Season 3, Episode 15, Daily Life in the Ashanti Empire. So, imagine for a minute that you are a child born into the Ashanti Empire, circa about 1810. Like in pretty much every other society, the first introduction that children typically received to the wider world took place through education. Rather than the centralized educational system typical of contemporary societies, you know, with many children sitting in a room being taught by a single professional teacher, the bulk of an Ashanti child's education took place at home. This wasn't really unusual, as this was the case for most parts of the world in the early 19th century. For the children of elites, it wouldn't be uncommon for their parents to hire a professional tutor who would oversee the children in topics like medicine, public speaking, religion, and, most importantly, 
professional etiquette. For the majority of the Empire's children, those sired by the working classes of farmers, miners, and craftspeople, education was conducted primarily by the child's adult relatives. The responsibility to educate children did not align closely with either sex. Ashanti families were not nuclear, that is, composed exclusively of the children and their parents, but extended. Typically, families lived together on large complexes, consisting of four or more housing units connected by an outdoor courtyard in the middle. Every member of the family was expected to share in the burden of materially providing for all the children in the family, as well as taking part in the raising of these children. That is to say, all adults in the family were simultaneously breadwinners and homemakers. The traditional style of parenting among the Ashanti is fairly easygoing, with the family seeking to reinforce children with good role modeling and proverbs rather than harsh discipline. Home education was more focused on practical matters. Weaving, while seen as a feminine activity in many cultures, was unisex to the Ashanti, and therefore taught to both boys and girls. While weaving as an action was not gendered, though, boys and girls, and then later men and women, were expected to weave different patterns of fabric, as these patterns were quite gendered in their association. These lessons in weaving were central to literacy among the Ashanti, as the Akan writing system of Adinkra is primarily stamped or woven into cloth, rather than printed on paper. Home education also taught children basic cooking, gardening, and other practical life skills, while also imparting the family's values and morals onto the children. Their teenage years was when Ashanti children's educational paths began to diverge. Instead of attending a large, formalized university, Ashanti teens and young adults were recruited to act as apprentices to a master of whichever field they were expected to work in. These apprenticeships typically took several years, and were necessary for basically any type of middle-class work. Smiths, full-time hunters, merchants, carpenters, religious officials, and state officials. All of these jobs required an extensive apprenticeship to work. As you might expect, only a select minority of Ashanti subjects actually worked in careers that required apprenticeships, that is, these professional middle-class positions. Rather, the vast majority of people worked in the industries that made up the bulk of the Ashanti economy, mining and farming. The Ashanti Empire was, throughout its lifespan, an overwhelmingly rural empire. While detailed population statistics of the Ashanti Empire do not exist, as the government never really concerned itself with official population censuses, most modern estimates of the empire's population record somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5 million people. Kumasi, the largest city in the empire by a significant margin, had a population of around 100,000 people. Of the more important cities of the empire, like Juaben, Mampong, Bego, Salaga, and Oboasi, none had populations surpassing 30,000. So, needless to say, the empire was overwhelmingly rural. The Ashanti rural economy was dominated by two classes of landowners. The more populous class of landowners were the Dihi, or farmers who own and work a small plot of land. The Dihi class of the Ashanti Empire typically worked in subsistence farming, in which they farmed primarily to fill their own food needs and then sold surplus on the market. They farmed staple crops like yams, plantains, taro, millet, and cassava. Then there were the large landowners. Traditionally, these were nobles descended from long lineages of landholding families. But, as we discussed a couple episodes back, during the late 18th century, it became increasingly common for urban bourgeoisie, like merchants or bureaucrats, to purchase large rural estates for themselves. Large rural estates were essentially communities in their own right, self-sustaining entities that were directed to provide enough to meet the needs of the estate's labor, and with surplus goods producing profit for the landlord. The main economic output of these estates varied by geography. Estates with high gold concentrations or long rivers typically focused their labor's effort on gold mining and panning. Areas with high elephant populations hunted the animals for their ivory. Most estates, though, functioned as plantations. These plantations grew all sorts of crops, mostly cash crops like spices, kola nuts, and palm oil. 
Due to their high economic output, these major estates were often integrated into the Ashanti infrastructure system, with roads connecting the estates to cities where porters carried the estate's goods to merchant houses, where the goods were then distributed to the city's markets. The vast, vast majority of the Ashanti royal population was composed of, you guessed it, the people who worked on these large estates. These workers generally fell into two wider social strata. The wealthiest and best respected workers on a large Ashanti estate were free workers, as their name implies, free, as in nobody's slave. Typically, free laborers were a relatively small portion of the population on any given estate, occupying niche jobs like overseers, entertainers, and resident government officials like police. But who did the actual mining, panning, and farming on these large estates? Well, most of the work was done by enslaved people. Yes, while slavery among the Ashanti and West Africa more generally is mostly associated with the transatlantic slave trade, it's important to remember that the slave trade was not an isolated procurement of slaves, but rather European countries tapping into a pre-existing system of West African slavery. And, as a result, most of the enslaved people in the Ashanti Empire at any given time were not sold to European merchants, but continued to live and labor on Ashanti estates. Additionally, I think it's worth noting that, sadly, there exists an unusual trend of apologia for so-called African slavery. I saw it a lot in history classes during my undergraduate studies, where people would try to argue that slavery in Africa as a whole, including in the Ashanti Empire, was somehow gentler or more benevolent than in the Americas. Now, as we all know, Africa is a continent, so different societies from all over the continent practice slavery very differently. So trying to say that so-called African slavery was this or that will just inevitably misrepresent reality. And, well, this podcast isn't here to answer whether Ashanti slavery as a whole was better or worse than transatlantic slavery. Because people suffered immensely under both systems, so comparing them morally comes across to me as, I don't know, splitting hairs of human tragedy. From what I can tell, the myth in academia of benevolent Ashanti slavery originated because academics in the early 20th century interviewed former Ashanti slaveholding families and took them uncritically at their word when they said that Ashanti slavery was actually not so bad. Now, for reasons that should be obvious, we can't trust a slave owner's description of slavery to be accurate. So, while researching the institution of Ashanti slavery, I decided to rely primarily on the testimonies of former enslaved people and neutral scholarly work from a later era, and to only take seriously the word of Ashanti slave owners when there was no contradicting evidence. So, slave is an English word, derived from Latin, so you won't hear anybody in the Ashanti empire call anyone a slave. Rather, the Ashanti, and Akan more generally, had four different words to describe four very different social strata of enslaved people. The first class of enslaved people among the Ashanti were domom, or war slaves. Domom refers to any person who was enslaved through an act of war, including prisoners of war, people enslaved during the sack of a captured town, or people extracted from a vassal as a form of tribute. Of all enslaved people in the Ashanti Empire, Domom were arguably the most inhumanely treated. They were considered chattel in the truest sense, property that could be used, abused, and disposed of with little or no consequence. As a result, the majority of enslaved people sold to European slave traders on the coast fell under the category of Domom. In a previous episode, I mentioned how certain Ashanti slaves could expect more autonomy and humane treatment if they belonged to an Abusua, or tribal family. While this is true for most Ashanti slaves, it was typically not for Domum. After all, many Domum were not Akan, and therefore did not belong to an Abusoa at all. Those who did were often transported far away from their original home, and therefore quite distant from the protection of their family. If an Ashanti state possessed a workforce of Domum, they were typically assigned the hardest, most dangerous jobs. 
unusually for Akan slavery as we'll see, Domom's status was also hereditary, with the children of Domom inheriting the label from their parents. The next class of enslaved people were called Odonkul, the class that aligns most closely with the common conception of slavery. They were enslaved people who were purchased from a slave merchant or at a market. The lifestyle and treatment that Odonko received varied heavily from case to case. They were nowhere near the low status of Domom, and were typically not viewed as property per se, which we'll elaborate on later. Additionally, the lifestyle of Odonko varied immensely by the job that they were assigned. Some Odonko were put to work as domestic servants. Others were put to work as porters, the people who transported goods to and from the rural estates. Sometimes, Odonko were even granted a degree of power over other enslaved people, acting as overseers or as personal assistants to the family of the estate. The most exceptional case of this was Apoko Frefre, a former Odonko who was freed from bondage by the Ashantahene Osekwame, we talked about a couple episodes back, and eventually became the Minister of Finance. But remember, this was exceptional. In the vast majority of cases, Odonko were used as hard labor, forming the backbone of the Ashanti rural labor economy. They toiled in mines, panned for golden rivers, harvested and processed crops. The position of Odonko was almost always lifelong, but unlike Domom, Odonko slavery was usually not hereditary. It was the norm for Odonko's children to be born as free people and integrated into the slaveholding family. You see, the ideology that justified Akan slavery posited that Odonko were essentially lower members of their owner's family which is what justified their status as unpaid, unfree labor. I mean, it's normal for people to engage in unpaid labor to take care of their family, right? As a result, the Odonko's children were also part of this family. But being born a free person didn't mean freedom if your parents were Odonko. They were not treated as equals, but still clearly as an underclass within the family. And while Odonko's status itself was not hereditary, the status as a descendant of Odonko marked people for life and acted as a badge of lower status. Kwame Anthony Apia, an Ashanti philosopher, wrote about the practice. I asked my father, in a room full of people, if one of the women there was really my aunt. She lived in one of the family houses, and I had always called her auntie. In memory, I see her lowering her eyes as my father brushed the question aside angrily. And here's why my father changed the subject. My auntie was, as everyone else in the room would have known, the descendant of a family slave. Unlike her ancestors, she could not be sold. She could not be separated against her will from her children. She was free to work wherever she could. Yet in the eyes of the community and in her own eyes, she was of lower status than the rest of us. The next class of Ashanti enslaved people was the Achieri. And the existence of the Achieri class is why I had to say that the Domom were arguably the most inhumanely treated Ashanti slaves. The ranks of Achieri consisted of convicted criminals on death row, but who were ordered to work as domestic servants for either the Ashantahane himself or other prestigious Ashanti elites. Now, it may seem weird for the Ashanti king to essentially use death row inmates as domestic slaves, but it makes more sense when you consider the symbolism of such an institution. The Ashantahane framed himself, first and foremost, as the bringer of law, justice, and order. So, the Ashantahane's use of criminals, the violators of law and justice, as domestic slaves served as a powerful symbol of the king's authority and his dominant status over those who would dare to disrupt the social order. As death row inmates, this servitude typically didn't last very long, and either at the conclusion of their service or the death of their owner, Achiri slaves were executed. Though in rare cases, sometimes especially talented or remorseful Achiri were pardoned at the Ashantahane's dying request as a show of mercy. The final and most common class of Ashanti slavery was Awoa, or debt penage. Of all forms of Ashanti slavery, 
Awoa were by far the class with the most personal autonomy, protections, and freedoms. Rather than being enslaved through war, criminal charges, or purchase, Awoa were people enslaved through their debts. Typically, this took the form of someone who conceded their freedom in exchange for forgiveness of their or their family's personal debts to an Ashanti elite. In a technical sense, Awoa were not slaves, but rather comparable to indentured servitude. In theory, Awoa were not anyone's property, and could expect the same legal rights as any other free worker. The only difference is that, rather than being compensated directly for their work, they were compensated in the form of gradual debt forgiveness. However, this was often not the case in reality. Often, Awoa resembled a donko in everything but name. In many cases, rapacious debt holders would mislead Awoa to keep them in bondage longer than they had agreed sometimes lasting for almost a lifetime. Since the rise of the Ashanti Empire, Owoa servitude gradually expanded as the Ashanti economy became more integrated and complex. Additionally, the existence of the Awoa class essentially meant that even minor crimes often resulted in Awoa servitude as their punishment, as the common members of Ashanti society usually needed to take out loans to pay out criminal fines. So, with each passing year, the population of people in this strange system of debt-based bondage increased. In fact, we'll soon see that this proliferation of the debt penage class will become something of an economic problem for the Ashanti, and that serious legislative action will have to be taken to deal with it. But that's just foreshadowing. Anyways, while that just about covers the economic life of the Ashanti populace, what did your average Kwajo do after work? Well, the answer was usually more work, but in a more relaxed manner. The evening is when most rural Ashanti workers did household chores, such as cooking, weaving new clothes and blankets, fishing, tending to personal gardens, cleaning up living areas, and fetching water from nearby rivers and irrigation canals. In rural areas, remember that the nearest market could be pretty far away, so families had to be quite self-sufficient. In the rare periods of idleness, sometimes rural workers would make crafts, usually small trinkets as their spare time allowed, or play games like oware, a traditional Akan form of mankala. In addition to craftsmaking, Ashanti common people sometimes spent their rare moments of spare time performing music. Ghana as a whole is divided largely into two forms of musical traditions, with the Sahelian-style, harmonic type of music dominating the north, while a more rhythmic tradition dominated the south. The Ashanti, who lived in an empire which enveloped much of both of these regions, developed a unique folk musical genre that incorporated elements of both northern and southern styles, though admittedly, the rhythmic stylings of the south are more apparent. Melody in Ashanti music was provided typically either by singing or from the separewa, a type of string instrument resembling a harp. Rhythm, on the other hand, was provided by what else but drums. The Ashanti possessed numerous different types of drums, most of which were used exclusively for music. However, there existed one particularly famous type of drum that, while often used for music as well, could also be used in numerous other practical applications. This fascinating piece of technology is called the odondo, but is more widely known by its English nickname, the Talking Drum. In this nickname, Talking Drum, is not as figurative as you might expect. You see, Akan, along with many languages in coastal West Africa, is a tonal language, meaning that the pitch, speed, and force with which certain words are spoken are part of what determines their meaning. Talking drums have two drum heads connected by a series of tightly tensioned cords of leather, which, when manipulated, allow the drummer to change the pitch of the drum beats. So, by changing the rhythm, pitch, and volume of each beat, the drummer can effectively replicate the tones of Akan speech. The Akan were not the only people to use them either, as Yoruba, Fon, Edo, and many other West African cultures use similar techniques to replicate speech through drumming. In practice, talking drums could function a lot like megaphones, allowing the drummer to send a loud message reverberating across long distances. While corded talking drums were typically handheld and not especially loud, 
Large sets consisting of multiple differently pitched drums could send messages booming across miles at a time. In the Ashanti Empire, there even existed an array of drummers who would repeat each other's messages, allowing spoken messages to travel at incredibly quick speeds. For example, one drummer in Obawasi could play a message, then another drummer would hear it three miles away, he would play it, another drummer would hear it and play it, all the way until they reached Kumasi. Using this message, the Ashanti could, essentially, send messages at the speed of sound, albeit with breaks for each drummer to hear, comprehend, and replay the message. Until the invention of the telegraph, these talking drum networks in West Africa were the most efficient way to communicate over long distances in human history. Of course, this was very useful in an empire as rural as the Ashanti, as it allowed rural estates and villages to have a fast way to communicate with their neighbors or, if need be, the central government. Pretty cool, right? I'll post a video showcasing this practice on the podcast blog. And, well, that's the average day in the life of a subject of the Ashantehene. Next episode, we'll resume our normal narrative, as the newest, largest, and final major threat to the Ashanti emerges. Far away from the Ashanti Infanti, thousands of miles north in the cloudy land of Britain, a series of developments are taking place that will guarantee that the peace between the Ashanti and British won't last. Join us next episode, as we chart the beginnings and early stages of the first, and certainly not last, True Anglo-Ashanti War. And before we go, I'd like to extend a big thanks to this show's longtime editor, Tida. When we first started the show, neither myself nor her had really any idea of what we were doing. I had no experience in podcasting, and she had no experience in audio engineering. Despite some early struggles, Tida showed outstanding improvement in her audio engineering skills and even provided some awesome voice work for our episodes on Gudit and Amatamia. While scheduling conflicts are now cutting short her time on the program, I'd like to extend a great thank you to her for everything she did. With that said, thank you, Tida, and a warm welcome to our new editor, Justin. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tunglin, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, and Alexander Travis, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.